0: This is chapter 24 on black holes and curved spacetime and there are 7 sections to this chapter 24.1 introducing general relativity 24.2 spacetime and gravity 24.3 tests of general relativity 24.4 time in general relativity 24.5 black holes 24.6 evidence for black holes and 24.7 gravitational wave astronomy The opening figure, figure 24.1, is really interesting, and it's the same that's on our Moodle page for this week. And to read the caption, it says, Stellar mass black hole. On the left, a visible light image shows a region of the sky in the constellation of Cygnus. The red box marks the position of the X-ray source, Cygnus X1. It's an example of a black hole created when a massive star collapses at the end of its life. Cygnus X1 is in a binary star system, and the artist's illustration on the right shows the black hole pulling material away from a massive blue companion star. This material forms a disk, shown in red and orange, that rotates around the black hole before falling into it or being redirected away from the black hole in the form of powerful jets. The material in the disk, before it falls into the black hole, is so hot that it glows with X-rays, explaining why this object is an X-ray source. Now let's read the chapter's opening paragraph. It says, For most of the 20th century, black holes seemed the stuff of science fiction, portrayed either as monster vacuum cleaners consuming all the matter around them, or as tunnels from one universe to another. But the truth about black holes is almost stranger than fiction. As we continue our voyage into the universe, we will discover that black holes are the key to explaining many mysterious and remarkable objects, including collapsed stars and the active centers of giant galaxies. This is Section 24.1, Introducing General Relativity. By the end of this section, you should be able to do four things. One, discuss some of the key ideas of the theory of general relativity. Two, recognize that one's experiences of gravity and acceleration are interchangeable and indistinguishable. Three, distinguish between Newton's ideas of gravity and Einstein's ideas of gravity. And four, recognize why the theory of general relativity is necessary for understanding the nature of black holes. As you know, most stars are not very massive stars. Most stars have a low mass or maybe a medium mass, and therefore most stars end their lives as white dwarfs or neutron stars. Remember, white dwarfs were those stars where the electron degeneracy pressure is enough to avoid collapse neutron stars, which are a little bit larger, need the power of neutron degeneracy to prevent the collapse. When a very massive star collapses at the end of its life, not even the mutual repulsion between these densely packed neutrons can support the core against its own weight. As it turns out, if the remaining mass of the star's core is more massive than about three times the mass of the Sun. Now, mind you, that's the mass of the core, not the initial mass of the star. If the remaining mass of the star's core is more than about three times the mass of the Sun, our theories predict that no known force can stop it from collapsing forever. (laughs) Gravity simply overwhelms all the other forces and crushes the core until it occupies an infinitely small volume. A star in which this occurs may become one of the strangest objects ever predicted by theory, a black hole. To understand what a black hole is like and how it influences its surroundings, we need a theory that can describe the action of gravity under such extreme circumstances. To date, our best theory of gravity is the general theory of relativity, which was put forward in 1916 by Albert Einstein. General relativity was one of the major intellectual achievements of the 20th century. If it were music, we could compare it to the great symphonies of Beethoven or Mahler. However, until recently, scientists had little need for a better theory of gravity. Isaac Newton's ideas that led to his universal law of gravitation are perfectly sufficient for most of the objects we deal with in everyday life. In the past century, however, general relativity has become more than just a beautiful idea. It is now essential in understanding pulsars, quasars, and many other astronomical objects and events, including the black holes that we'll discuss here. The book says, and I agree, (laughs) we should perhaps mention here, that this is the point in an astronomy course when many students start to feel a little nervous and perhaps wish they had taken botany or some other earthbound course to satisfy the science requirement. This is because in popular culture, Einstein has become a symbol for mathematical brilliance that is simply beyond the reach of most people. So, when we wrote The Theory of General Relativity was Einstein's work, you may have worried just a little bit, convinced that anything Einstein did must be beyond your understanding. This popular view is unfortunate and mistaken. Although the detailed calculations of general relativity do involve a great deal of higher mathematics, the basic ideas are not difficult to understand, and are, in fact, almost poetic in the way they give us a new perspective on the world. Moreover, general relativity goes beyond Newton's famous inverse-square law of gravity. It helps explain how matter interacts with other matter in space and time. This explanatory power is one of the requirements that any successful scientific theory must meet. Pay attention for a moment to the discussion of the principle of equivalence. It's a really important concept when it comes to general relativity. The principle of equivalence. The fundamental insight that led to the formulation of the general theory of relativity starts with a very simple thought. If you were able to jump off a high building and fall freely, you would not feel your own weight. In this chapter, we'll describe how Einstein built on this idea to reach sweeping conclusions about the very fabric of space and time itself. He called it the happiest thought of my life. (laughs) Einstein himself pointed out an everyday example that illustrates this effect. It's shown in Figure 24.3, but you'll probably be able to imagine it with me. Notice how your weight seems to be reduced in a high speed elevator when it accelerates from a stop to a rapid descent. Similarly, your weight seems to increase in an elevator that starts to move quickly upward. This effect is not just a feeling you have. If you stood on a scale in such an elevator, a weight scale, you could measure your weight changing. And you can actually perform this experiment in some science museums. Or if you're at a hotel and happen to have a scale with you, you can practice it there. Now let's turn our attention to an elevator we see often in thriller movies a freely falling elevator. In a freely falling elevator with no air friction, you would lose your weight altogether. We generally don't like to cut cables holding elevators to try this experiment, but near weightlessness can be achieved by taking an airplane up to a high altitude and then dropping rapidly for a while. This is how NASA trains its astronauts for the experience of freefall in space. The scenes of weightlessness in the 1995 movie Apollo 13 were filmed in the same way. It's a great film, by the way. I really encourage you to watch it. Movie makers have since devised other methods, including underwater filming, wire stunts, and computer graphics to create the appearance of weightlessness seen in other movies like Gravity and The Martian. At this point in the reading, there's a link to learning box, and it reads, Watch how NASA uses a weightless environment to help train astronauts. And as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. Another way to state Einstein's idea is this, suppose we have a spaceship that contains a windowless laboratory equipped with all the tools needed to perform scientific experiments. In other words, just imagine a room in space that has no windows so you can't see outside. Now imagine that you wake up after a long night celebrating some scientific breakthrough and find yourself sealed in this room, this laboratory. You'll have no idea how it happened, but you notice that you're weightless. This could be because you and the laboratory are far away from any source of gravity, and both you and the laboratory are either at rest or moving at some steady speed through space, in which case you have plenty of time to wake up. (laughs) But it could also be because you and the laboratory are falling freely toward a planet like Earth. What Einstein postulated is that there is no experiment while in that laboratory, that sealed room, that you can perform to determine whether you're just floating in space or falling freely in a gravitational field. As far as you're concerned, the two situations are a completely equivalent. You cannot distinguish between the two. This idea that free fall is indistinguishable from and therefore equivalent to Zero gravity is called the equivalence principle. If that makes any sense to you, then you're well on your way to getting the theory of general relativity. Gravity or acceleration. Einstein's simple idea has big consequences. Let's begin by imagining you and a friend standing on opposite sides of a trench, a really deep trench. And let's imagine that you jump into the trench. We'll ignore air friction, which means we'll pretend that there's no air to slow you down. If we ignore air friction, then we can say that while you're freely falling, you both accelerate downward at the same rate and you don't feel any external force acting on you. And you and your friend can throw a ball back and forth, always aiming it straight straight at each other as if there were no gravity. The ball is going to fall at the same rate that you do because there's no air friction. So it always remains in the line between you. If we repeated the ball toss on Earth, you know that you would have to compensate for gravity acting on the ball while it's in air. In other words, you would have to aim the ball slightly upward so that it follows an arc, rising and then falling as it moves forward until it's caught by your friend on the other side. Let's go back into Trench, you're falling, and your friend is falling with you. Suppose that you're isolated, and now imagine that you and your friend can't see your surroundings. You can't see the walls of the cliff, you can't see the area you're falling towards, and you can't see the area above. It's as if you're enclosed in a box that's falling with you. Then you will not be able to see a gravitational force or detect it in any way. You're holding a ball. If you let go of it in front of you, it'll be falling at the same rate that you're falling, that your friend is falling, and that the box is falling. So it will seem to hover in space. You might think that this situation is really far fetched. I mean, why and how would you and a friend be in a box that's freely falling around Earth, where if you let go of things, they just hover in the air with you? But it's actually what astronauts in the International Space Station that's orbiting Earth experience. It's actually, the International Space Station is actually falling freely around Earth. And while in free fall, the astronauts live in a strange world where there seems to be no gravitational force. Astronauts living on the International Space Station, where there seems to be no gravitational force, can do some really fun things. And there are tons of videos where they show you <laughs> just all of them crazy fun things that they can do. There's a link to Learning Box at this point in the reading, and it says, In the weightless environment of the International Space Station, moving takes very little effort. Watch astronaut Karen Nyberg demonstrate how she can propel herself with the force of a single human hair. I encourage you to visit this link and to google life on the International Space Station where you can watch them try and figure out how to eat, make coffee, shampoo their hair. It's a lot of fun and it's really interesting. Let's continue the reading appearances are misleading. There is a force in this situation. Both the International Space Station and the astronauts in it continually fall around Earth, pulled by its gravitational force. But since everything is falling together, inside the International Space Station all gravitational forces appear to be absent. Thus, the orbiting International Space Station provides an excellent example of the principle of equivalence, showing how local effects of gravity. Can be completely compensated for by the right acceleration downward. If you remember the example where you and your friend are falling in a trench and you can't see your surroundings, you don't know the gravity exists. The ball that you're throwing between you travels in a straight line, or if you let go of the ball, it seems to hover freely. Astronauts feel this way. As they fall around Earth, it seems like they're far off in space. Gravity doesn't seem to matter. But in reality, gravity is there. It's what's making them and everything around them fall. The paths of light and matter. Einstein postulated that the equivalence principle is a fundamental fact of nature, that there is no experiment inside any spacecraft by which an astronaut can ever distinguish between being weightless and remote in space and being in free fall near a planet like Earth. This would apply to experiments done with beams of light as well. But the minute we use light in our experiments, we're led to some very disturbing conclusions. And it's these conclusions that lead us to general relativity and a new view of gravity. It seems apparent to us, from everyday observations, that beams of light travel in straight lines. Imagine that a spaceship is moving through empty space far from any gravity. Send a laser beam from the back of the ship to the front, and it'll travel in a nice straight line and land on the front wall exactly opposite the point from which it left the rear wall. If the equivalence principle really applies universally, then this same experiment performed in free fall around Earth should give us the same result. Now imagine astronauts on the International Space Station in free fall around the Earth. And let's say they shine a beam of light along the length of the station. This time, the orbiting space station falls a bit between the time the light leaves the back wall and the time it hits the front wall. Therefore, if the beam of light follows a straight line, but the ship's path curves downward, then the light would strike the front wall at a point higher than the point from which it left the back wall. However, this would violate the principle of equivalence. The two experiments would give different results. We are therefore faced with giving up one of our two assumptions. Either the principle of equivalence is not correct, or light does not always travel in straight lines. Instead of dropping what probably seemed at the time like a ridiculous idea, Einstein worked out what happens if light sometimes does not follow a straight path. Let's suppose the principle of equivalence is right. Then the light beam must arrive directly opposite the point from which it started in the station. The light, like the ball through back and forth, must fall with the station that is in orbit around the Earth. This would make its path curve downward, like the path of the ball, and thus the light would hit the front wall at exactly opposite the spot from which it came. Think about what this is saying. If we were on Earth, and we had a laser pointer and a ball, and we threw them exactly horizontally in the same direction towards, say, a tree, the ball would fall downward, but the light beam would not. So in free fall, if we throw a ball across the station, and we also point a laser beam at the other side of the station, we would expect, because the station and everything in it is falling, that the ball would hit the opposite side at the exact location, but the light would bend upwards because the station has fallen, whereas the light has not. Thinking this over, you might well conclude that it doesn't seem like such a big problem. So, why can't light fall the way balls do? If you remember in our Newtonian idea of gravity, things that have mass are affected by gravitational forces, but things that don't have mass are not affected by gravitational forces. Balls have mass, light does not. Balls would fall with everything in free fall, they would seem to hover in space. Light would not. We would expect, as everything around the light beam falls, the light beam to stay in the same place, that is, the beam to curve upwards. But in reality, it doesn't. It behaves just like the ball and reaches the other side of the station at the same place that the ball does. Here's where Einstein's intuition and genius allowed him to make a profound leap. He gave physical meaning to this strange result and suggested that, like the ball, light curves down to meet the front of the station because Earth's gravity actually bends the fabric of space and time. This radical idea, which we will explain next, keeps the behavior of light the same in both empty space and in free fall, but it changes some of our basic and most cherished ideas about space. In time. The reason we take Einstein's suggestion seriously is that, as we'll see, experiments now clearly show his intuitive leap was correct. This is section 24.2 Space Time and Gravity. And by the end of the section, you should be able to do two things. One, describe Einstein's view of gravity as the warping of space time in the presence of massive objects and, two, realize that Newton's concept of the gravitational force between two massive objects and Einstein's concept of warped space-time are different explanations for the same observed accelerations of one massive object in the presence of another massive object. Is light actually bent from its straight-line path by the mass of the Earth? How can light, which has no mass, be affected by gravity? Einstein preferred to think that it is space and time that are affected by the presence of a large mass. Light beams and everything else that travels through space and time then find their paths affected. Light always follows the shortest path, but that path may not always be straight. This idea is true for human travel on the curved surface of planet Earth as well. Say you want to fly from Chicago to Rome. Since an airplane can't go through Earth, the shortest distance is not a straight line, but the arc of a great circle. How in the world, you ask, can mass, space, and time be linked together? To show what Einstein's insight really means, let's first consider how we locate an event in space and in time. For example, imagine you have to describe to worried school officials the fire that broke out in your room when your roommate tried cooking shish kebabs in the fireplace. (laughs) Their first question will probably be, how did you get a fireplace in your dorm room? In any case, you explain that your dorm is at 6400 College Avenue, a street that runs in the left-right direction on a map of your town. You're on the fifth floor, which tells where you are in the up-down direction, and you're the sixth room back from the elevator, which tells where you are in the forward-backward direction. Then, you explain that the fire broke out at 6.23 p.m., but was soon brought under control. That specifies the event in time. Any event in the universe, whether nearby or far away, can be pinpointed using the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Isaac Newton considered space and time to be completely independent, and that continued to be the accepted view until the beginning of the 20th century. Einstein showed that there is an intimate connection between space and time, and that only by considering the two together, in what we call space-time, can we build up a correct picture of the physical world. We examine space-time a bit more closely in the next subsection. The gist of Einstein's general relativity is that the presence of matter curves or warps the fabric of space-time. This curving of space-time is identified with gravity. When something else, a beam of light, an electron, or the starship Enterprise, enters such a region of distorted space-time, its path will be different from what it would have been in the absence of the matter. As American physicist John Wheeler summarized it so well, matter tells space-time how to curve. Space-time tells matter how to move. The amount of distortion in space-time depends on the mass of material that is involved and how unconcentrated and compact it is. Terrestrial objects, such as your cell phone, have far too little mass to introduce any significant distortion. Newton's view of gravity is just fine for building bridges, skyscrapers, or amusement park rides. General relativity does, however, have some practical applications. The GPS, or Global Positioning System, System and every smartphone can tell you where you are within five to ten meters only because the effects of general relativity and special relativity on the GPS satellites in orbit around the Earth are taken into account, unlike a cell phone or you. stars produce measurable distortions in spacetime. a white dwarf with its stronger surface gravity produces more distortion just above its surface than does a red giant with the same mass. So, you see, we are eventually going to talk about collapsing stars again, but not before discussing Einstein's ideas and the evidence for them in more detail. The concept of the distortion of space-time is so foreign to our everyday experience that it might require some examples to get used to, and we'll start with an analogy. You may have seen maps of New York City that squeeze the full three dimensions of this towering metropolis into a flat sheet of paper, yet it still carries enough information that tourists don't get lost. Let's try and make a similar kind of map in space-time, and to make things easier, we'll consider something moving in one direction only, and that'll be in the east direction. So it's not moving north or south, and it's not moving up or down. It's moving solely in the east direction. The reading refers to the situation, and it has a figure, figure 24.7, that it might be easier to understand the reading if you see the figure. So if you get a moment, take a look. It reads, figure 24.7, for example shows the progress of a motorist driving east on a stretch of road in Kansas where the countryside is absolutely flat. Since our motorist is traveling only in the east direction and the train is flat, we can ignore the other two dimensions of space. That is, we can ignore up and down and we can ignore north and south. So if we consider their progress in space-time, we can draw this on a simple two-dimensional graph where one axis say the vertical axis, shows their forward progress through time, and the other axis, the horizontal axis, shows their motion along the east direction. The graph has three points on it, A, B, C, and D. The reading says, from point A to B, the motorist drove at a uniform speed. Unfortunately, that speed was too fast, and a police car spotted them, From point B to C, the motorist stopped to receive a ticket and made no progress through space, only through time. From C to D, they drove more slowly because the police car was behind them. You're probably thinking to yourself, hey, that's really cool, but why did we just do this? (laughs) And it was an exercise in mapping motion in space-time. We just watched a motorist travel through space-time. Now let's try illustrating the distortions of space-time in two dimensions. In this case, we will, in our imaginations, use a rubber sheet that can stretch or warp if we put objects on it. Let's imagine stretching our rubber sheet taut on four posts. And let's imagine the four posts are at vertices of a rectangle. Now our sheet is stretched such that it has the shape of a rectangle. To complete the analogy, we need something that normally travels in a straight line. Suppose we have an extremely intelligent ant, and we've trained it to walk in a straight line. We begin with just the rubber sheet and the ant, simulating empty space with no mass in it. We put the ant on one side of the sheet, and it walks in a beautiful straight line over to the other side. Now let's say we put a small grain of sand in the rubber sheet. The sand does distort the sheet a tiny, tiny bit, but it's not something that we or the ant can measure. So if we send the ant so that it goes close to but not on top of the sand grain, it has little trouble continuing to walk in a straight line. Now we grab something with a little more mass, say a small pebble, and it bends or distorts the sheet just a bit around its position. If we send the ant to this region, it finds the path slightly altered by the distortion in the sheet. The distortion isn't large, but if we follow the ant's path carefully, we notice it deviating slightly from the straight line. The effect gets more noticeable as we increase the mass of the object that we put in the sheet. (laughs) Let's say we now use a massive bowling ball. Such a heavy object distorts or warps the rubber sheet very effectively, putting a good sag in it. From our point of view, we can see that the sheet near the bowling ball is no longer straight. Now let's send the ant on a journey that takes it close to but not on top of the bowling ball. Far away from the bowling ball, the ant has no trouble doing its walk, which looks straight to us. As it nears the bowling ball, the ant is forced down into the sag. It must then climb up the other side before it can return to walking on an undistorted part of the sheet. All this while, the ant is following the shortest path it can, but through no fault of its own, after all, ants can't fly, so it has to stay on the sheet, this path is curved by the distortion of the sheet itself. In the same way, according to Einstein's theory, light always follows the shortest path through space-time, but the mass associated with large concentrations of matter distorts space-time, and the shortest, most direct paths Are no longer straight lines but curves. You might wonder if our cell phones or we ourselves are not enough to distort space time in a measurable way, how large does a mass have to be before we can measure the change in path followed by light? In 1916, when Einstein first proposed his theory, no distortion had been detected on the surface of Earth. So Earth might have played the role of the grain of sand in our analogy. Something with a mass like our sun's was necessary to detect the effect Einstein was describing. The bowling ball in our analogy might be like a white dwarf or a neutron star. The distortion of space-time is greater near the surfaces of these very compact massive objects than near the surface of our sun. And when, to return to the situation described at the beginning of the chapter, a star core with more than three times the mass of the sun collapses forever, The distortions of space-time very close to it can become truly mind-boggling. This is section 24.3, Tests of General Relativity, and by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. 1. Describe the unusual motion of Mercury around the Sun. 2. Explain how general relativity explains this unusual motion, and 3 provide examples of evidence for light rays being bent by massive objects as predicted by general relativity's theory about the warping of space-time. What Einstein proposed was nothing less than a major revolution in our understanding of space and time. It was a new theory of gravity in which mass determines the curvature of space-time and that curvature in turn controls how objects move. Like all new ideas in science, no matter who advances them, Einstein's theory had to be tested by comparing its predictions against the experimental evidence. There was quite a challenge because the effects of the new theory were apparent only when the mass was quite large. For smaller masses, it required measuring techniques that would not become available until decades later. Remember, his theory came out in 1916. When the distorting mass is small, the predictions of general relativity must agree with our general perceptions of gravity when we deal with small masses in everyday life. That is, it must agree with those resulting from Newton's law of universal gravitation. After all, that law has served us admirably in our technology and in guiding space probes to other planets. In familiar territory, therefore, the differences between the predictions of the two models are subtle and difficult to detect. Nevertheless, Einstein was able to demonstrate one proof of his theory that could be found in existing data at the time, and to suggest another one that would be tested just a few years later. And that entails the motion of Mercury. Of the planets in our solar system, Mercury orbits closest to the Sun, and is thus most affected by the distortion of spacetime produced by the Sun's mass. Einstein wondered if the distortion might produce a noticeable difference in the motion of Mercury that was not predicted by Newton's law. It turned out that the difference was subtle, but it was definitely there. Most importantly, it had already been measured. As you know, Mercury's orbit around the Sun (laughs) is not circular. In fact, it's highly elliptical, and when Mercury is closest to the Sun, it's at its perihelion. When Mercury is furthest from the Sun, it's at its aphelion. Those are just two vocabulary words that we use for those two points. For Mercury, the perihelion distance is only about two thirds of the aphelion distance. The gravitational effects of other planets on Mercury. Actually, produce a calculable advance of Mercury's perihelion. This means that each successive perihelion occurs in slightly a different direction as seen from the Sun, and it causes its orbit to wobble. And what is this wobble? <laughs> if you've ever used a hula hoop and had it spinning around your waist, you'll notice that at some times one edge of the hula hoop is higher than the other edge. It's like it's tilted relative to the ground. And then over time, it can switch that so that the other side is tilted a little higher than the side you were looking at previously. And Mercury's orbit doesn't do this exactly, but you get the idea. It doesn't stay in the same plane. It kind of bends and rotates upward over time, keeping, of course, the Sun always at one focus. The point of the rest of this discussion about Mercury's orbital wobble (laughs) is that it can't be accounted for by the gravitational tugs of other planets in our solar system. The only thing that gives it any sense is the bending of space-time by the Sun's large mass right next to Mercury. The next two paragraphs read as follows, with a couple of word changes. According to Newtonian gravitation, the gravitational forces exerted by the planets will cause Mercury's perihelion to tilt (laughs) by about 531 arcseconds per century. In the 19th century, however, it was observed that the actual tilt is 574 arcseconds per century. The discrepancy was first pointed out in 1859 by a co-discoverer of Neptune, Urbain Le Verrier. Just as discrepancies in the motion of Uranus allowed astronomers to discover the presence of Neptune, so it was thought that this discrepancy in the motion of Mercury could mean the presence of an undiscovered inner planet. Astronomers searched for this planet near the sun, even giving it a name, Vulcan, after the Roman god of fire. The name would later be used for the home planet of a famous character on a popular television show about future space travel. But no planet has ever been found nearer to the sun than Mercury, and the discrepancy was still bothering astronomers when Einstein was doing his famous calculations. General relativity, however, predicts that due to the curvature of space-time around the Sun, the perihelion of Mercury should tilt slightly more than is predicted by Newtonian gravity. The result is to make the major axis of Mercury's orbit rotate slowly in space because of the Sun's gravity alone. The prediction of general relativity is that the direction of the perihelion would change by an additional 43 arcseconds per century. This is remarkably close to the observed discrepancy, and it gave Einstein a lot of confidence as he advanced his theory. The relativistic advance of perihelion was later also observed in the orbits of several asteroids that come close to the Sun. Now let's turn our attention to the deflection of starlight. Einstein's second test was something that had not been observed before and would thus provide an excellent confirmation of his theory. Since space-time is more curved in regions where the gravitational field is strong, we would expect light passing very near to the sun appear to follow a curved path, just like that of an ant in our analogy. Einstein calculated from general relativity theory that starlight just grazing the sun's surface should be deflected by an angle of 1.75 arcseconds. Could such a deflection be observed? We encounter a small technical problem (laughs) when we try to photograph starlight coming very close to the sun. The sun is an outrageously bright source of light itself. But during a solar eclipse, much of the sun's light is blocked out, allowing the stars near the sun to be photographed. In a paper published during World War I, Einstein, writing in a German journal, suggested that photographic observations during an eclipse could reveal the deflection of light passing near the sun. The technique involves taking a photograph of the stars six months prior to the eclipse and measuring the position of all stars accurately. This makes sense because six months prior to the eclipse, we're on the other side of the sun, so we're looking at stars that are not behind the sun. Six months later, we're on the other side of the sun, and those stars are behind the sun. When we are on the other side of the sun and the eclipse takes place, we take a photograph of those same stars now behind the sun. This is when the starlight has to travel to us by skirting the sun and moving through a measurably warped space-time. As seen from Earth, the stars closest to the sun will seem to be out of place, slightly away from their regular positions, as measured when the sun is not nearby. And it's not that those stars, which seem shifted, have actually shifted their position relative to the other stars. It's that the light they sent bent around the sun, and so our brain reconstructs the light as if it wasn't bent at all, and it looks as though the the star has shifted. Just like when you hold pencil in water, and you look at the pencil portion that's in the water, and it looks like it shifted. It also looks bigger. The pencil didn't actually break in half, get bigger, and move over. But the light is coming to us in such a way that our brain reconstructs that image. Back to Einstein's paper. A single copy of the paper passed through Holland, which was neutral during World War I and it reached the British astronomer Arthur Eddington, who noticed that the next suitable eclipse was on May 29, 1919. The British organized two expeditions to observe it, one on the island of Principe, off the coast of West Africa, and the other in Sobral, in northern Brazil. Despite some problems with the weather, both expeditions obtained successful photographs. The stars seen near the Sun were indeed displaced. And to the accuracy of the measurements, which was about 20% at the time, the shifts were consistent with the predictions of general relativity. Modern experiments with radio waves traveling close to the sun have confirmed the actual displacements within 1% of what general relativity predicts. The confirmation of theory by the eclipse expeditions of 1919 was a triumph (laughs) that made Einstein a world celebrity in his time. A few highlights of Einstein's life, he was born in Ulm, Germany in 1879. And in 1896, he renounced his German citizenship. He acquired Swiss citizenship in 1901, when he also completes his first scientific paper. He did a lot in the year of 1905 in terms of scientific discovery, and that's called the miracle year. Einstein made a number of advancements in areas of light, in areas of general relativity, and in areas of quantum mechanics. He traveled a lot, He was very active, and in 1928, he suffered a temporary collapse because, (laughs) no lie, his heart was too big. In 1933, he declared he would not return to Germany, and he traveled. He spent the spring and summer in Belgium and Oxford. He immigrated to the U.S. in September of that year, and in 1940, he acquired U.S. citizenship. He wrote many essays about world peace and humanity. That I made students in an honors class read once, and I think they were very insightful. In 1952, he was actually offered presidency of the State of Israel. Though his scientific breakthroughs, some of them, led to the development of nuclear weapons, he was very much a pacifist, and in 1955, he co signed a manifesto warning of the threat posed by nuclear weapons. That same year, at the age of 76, He died in Princeton Hospital of an aneurysm, and though his body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in an undisclosed place, Einstein left the world with greater insight and many gifts. I hope you don't mind if we end this section with a few quotes of Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. Imagination is everything. It's the preview of life's coming attractions. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. The important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. Insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Two things are infinite the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. Anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. And what's probably my personal favorite there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing Is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. Albert Einstein. This is section 24.4, where we look at time in general relativity. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. One, describe how Einsteinian gravity slows clocks and can decrease a light wave's frequency of oscillation and two, recognize that the gravitational decrease in a light wave's frequency is compensated for by an increase in the light wave's wavelength, the so-called gravitational redshift, that allows the light to continue to travel at a constant speed. The theory of general relativity makes various predictions about the behavior of both space and time. One of these predictions, put in everyday terms, is that the stronger the gravity, the slower the pace of time. Such a statement goes very much counter to our intuitive sense of time as the flow that we all share. Time has always seemed to be the most democratic of concepts. All of us, regardless of wealth or status, appear to move together from the cradle to the grave in the great current of time. But Einstein argued that that it only seems this way to us because all humans so far have lived and died in the gravitational environment of Earth. We have had no chance to test this idea that the pace of time might depend on the strength of gravity, because we have not experienced radically different gravities. Moreover, the differences in the flow of time are extremely small until truly large masses are involved. Nevertheless, Einstein's prediction has now been tested, both on Earth and in space. The Tests of Time An ingenious experiment in 1959 used the most accurate atomic clock known to compare time measurements on the ground floor and the top floor of the physics building at Harvard University. For a clock, the experimenters used the frequency of gamma rays emitted by radioactive cobalt, and as a reminder, frequency is a number of cycles per second. Einstein's theory predicts that such a cobalt clock on the ground floor, being a little bit closer to Earth's center of gravity, should run very slightly slower than the same clock on the top floor. This is precisely what the experiments observed. Later, atomic clocks were taken up in high-flying aircraft, and even on one of the Gemini spaceflights. In each case, the clocks farther from Earth ran a bit faster. While in 1959, it didn't matter much if the clock at the top of the building ran faster than the clock in the basement except for students taking exams in the top part of the building. Today, that effect is highly relevant. Every smartphone or device that synchronizes with a GPS must correct for this, since clocks on satellites, way up there far away from Earth's surface, will run faster than clocks on Earth. The effect is more pronounced if the gravity involved is the sun's and not the Earth's. If stronger gravity slows the pace of time, then it will take longer for a light or radio wave that passes very near the edge of the sun to reach Earth than we would expect on the basis of Newton's law of gravity. It takes longer because space-time is curved in the vicinity of the sun. The smaller the distance between the ray of light and the edge of sun at closest approach, the longer will be the delay in the arrival time. In November 1976, when two Viking spacecraft were operating on the surface of Mars, the planet went behind the sun as seen from Earth. Scientists had pre-programmed Viking to send a radio wave toward Earth that would go extremely close to the outer regions of the sun. According to general relativity, there would be a delay because the radio wave would be passing through a region where time ran more slowly. The experiment was able to confirm Einstein's theory to within 0.1%. Now let's turn our attention to gravitational redshift. What does it mean to say that time runs more slowly? When light emerges from a region of strong gravity where time slows down, the light experiences a change in its frequency and wavelength. To understand what happens, recall that a light wave is a repeating phenomenon. Crest follows crest with great regularity, just like an ocean wave. In this sense, each light wave is a little clock, keeping time with its wave cycle. If stronger gravity slows down the pace of time relative to an outside observer, then the rate at which crest follows crest must be correspondingly lower. That is, the waves become less frequent. To maintain constant light speed, which is a key postulate In Einstein's theories of both special and general relativity, the lower frequency must be compensated for by a longer wavelength. And me, someone who's taught physics a thousand and one times, I would say, yes, of course, the velocity of a wave is a product of its frequency and wavelength. So, for example, if the frequency halves, the wavelength will have to double to maintain the same product, to maintain the same velocity. If you remember, when a wavelength appears to be shifted by motion, for example, something is moving away from us and the wavelength increases, we call that a redshift, a redshift because red has a longer wavelength than colors such as blue. Here, because it's gravity and not motion that produces the longer wavelengths, we identify this kind of redshift by calling it a gravitational redshift. The advent of space-age technology made it possible to measure gravitational redshift with very high accuracy. In the mid-1970s, a hydrogen maser, which is kind of like a laser, but it uses microwaves, was carried by a rocket to an altitude of 10,000 kilometers. Instruments on the ground were used to compare the frequency of the signal emitted by the rocket-borne maser with that from a similar maser on Earth. The experiment showed that the stronger gravitational field at Earth's surface really did slow the flow of time relative to that measured by the maser in the rocket. The observed effect matched the predictions of general relativity to within a few parts in 100,000. These are only a few examples of tests that have confirmed the predictions of general relativity. Today, general relativity is accepted as our best description of gravity, and is used by astronomers and physicists to understand the behavior of the centers of galaxies, the beginning of the universe, and the subject with which we began this chapter, the death of truly massive stars. Now let's consider practicality. (laughs) You're probably asking, why should I be bothered with relativity? Can't I live my life perfectly well without it? The answer is, you can't. Every time a pilot lands an airplane, or you use a GPS to determine where you are on a drive or a hike in the backcountry, you, or at least your GPS-enabled device, must take the effects of both general and special relativity into account. GPS relies on an array of 24 satellites orbiting the Earth, and at least four of them are visible from any spot on the Earth. Each satellite carries a precise atomic clock and your GPS receiver detects the signals from those satellites that are overhead and calculates your position based on the time it has taken those signals to reach you. Suppose you want to know where you are within 50 feet of something. Since it takes only 50 billionths of a second for light to travel 50 feet, the clocks on satellites must be synchronized to at least this accuracy, and relativistic effects must therefore be taken into account. The clocks on the satellites are orbiting Earth at a speed of about 14,000 kilometers per hour and the satellites are 20,000 kilometers above Earth. So we have two things happening. One, the satellites are high above us, experiencing a lower force of gravity, and the clocks are moving faster. Both of those things affect how time elapses on the clocks. We have not discussed the theory of special relativity, but what it says is that objects that are moving fast experience time more slowly. And what we know is that objects that don't experience as much gravitational force experience time more quickly. The speed of the satellites make the clocks on the satellites tick more slowly by about 7 millionths of a second per day. But their height makes them tick more quickly by about 48 millionths of a second per day. The net effect is that the time on a satellite clock is about... 38 millionths of a second faster than the time of a clock on the ground. And if these two relativistic effects were not taken into account, navigational errors would start to add up and positions would be off by about 7 miles in only a single day. This is section 24.5 on black holes. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do four things. One. Explain the event horizon surrounding a black hole. You'll like that. Two, discuss why the popular notion of black holes as great sucking monsters that can ingest material at great distances from them is erroneous. <laughs> Three, use the concept of warped space time near a black hole to track what happens to any object that might fall into a black hole. And four, recognize why the concept of a singularity with its infinite density and zero volume, presents major challenges to our understanding of matter. Let's now apply what we've learned about gravity and space-time curvature to the issue we started with, the collapsing core in a very massive star. We saw that if the core's mass is greater than about three times the mass of our sun, theory says that nothing can stop the core from collapsing forever. We'll examine the situation from two perspectives, first from a pre-Einstein point of view, and then with the aid of general relativity. Let's look at the pre-Einstein point of view. We call it classical collapse because it uses classical physics developed by Newton, rather than modern physics, which applies to this situation a little bit better. But we'll start with the classical view. Beginning with a thought experiment, we want to know what speeds are required to escape from the gravitational pull of different objects. A rocket must be launched from the surface of Earth at a very high speed if it's to escape the pull of Earth's gravity. In fact, any object, a rocket, a ball, an astronomy book, an astronomy instructor, that's thrown into the air with a velocity of less than 11 kilometers per second, will soon fall back to the Earth's surface. Only those objects launched with a speed greater than this escape velocity can get away from Earth. As you might imagine, the sun's gravitational pull is a lot larger, so the escape velocity from the sun is even higher, it's 618 kilometers per second. Now, imagine we begin to compress the sun, forcing it to shrink in diameter. Recall that the pull of gravity depends on both the mass that's pulling you and your distance from the center of gravity of that mass. If the sun is compressed, its mass will remain the same, but the distance between a point on the sun's, let's say, surface and the center will get smaller and smaller. Thus, as we compress the star, the pull of gravity for an object on the shrinking surface will get stronger and stronger. Let's say we continue shrinking our sun until it reaches the size of a white dwarf, which will be our sun's limit because of electron degeneracy forces, if you remember. But let's say we can somehow push it even to a smaller size, to the size of a neutron star, which has a diameter about the size of a city 20 kilometers or so. If we could, the velocity required to to escape its gravitational pull will be about half the speed of light. That's about 150,000 kilometers per second. Suppose we can continue to compress the sun to a smaller and smaller diameter. Ultimately, as we shrink the sun, the escape velocity will increase. It'll reach the speed of light. And if we could shrink it even further, it would exceed the speed of light. If the speed you need to get away is faster than the fastest possible speed in the universe, then we say nothing, not even light, is able to escape. An object with such a large escape velocity emits no light, and anything that falls into it can never return. In modern terminology, we call an object from which light cannot escape a black hole, which is a name popularized by the American scientist John Wheeler, starting in the late 1960s. The idea that such objects might exist is, however, not a new one. Cambridge professor and amateur astronomer John Mitchell wrote a paper in 1783 about the possibility that stars with escape velocities exceeding the speed of light might exist. And in 1786, just a few years later, the French mathematician, who I'll call Laplace, and has a much longer name listed here, made similar calculations using Newton's theory of gravity. He called the resulting objects dark bodies. While these early calculations provided strong hints that something strange could be expected if very massive objects collapse under their own gravity, we really need the general theory of relativity to give an adequate description of what happens in such a situation. Let's revisit the collapse with general relativity to help us understand. General relativity tells us that the gravity is really a curvature of space-time. And as gravity increases, as in the collapsing sun of our thought experiment, the curvature gets larger and larger. Eventually, if the sun could shrink down to a diameter of about six kilometers, which it won't, (laughs) but if it could, only light beams sent out perpendicular to the surface would be able to escape. All others would fall back onto the star. If the sun could then shrink just a little more, even that one remaining light beam would no longer be able to escape. As we explore this, keep in mind that gravity is not pulling on the light. The concentration of matter has curved spacetime, and light, like the trained ant of our earlier example, is doing its best to go in a straight line. Yet, it is now confronted with a world in which straight lines that used to go outward have become curved paths that lead back in. The collapsing star is a black hole in this view, because the very concept of out has no geometric meaning. The star has become trapped in its own little pocket of space-time from which there is no escape. Communication between the star and the rest of the universe is cut off at precisely the moment when, in our earlier picture, the escape velocity becomes equal to the speed of light. The size of the star at this moment defines a surface that we will call the event horizon. It's a wonderfully descriptive name. Just as objects that sink below our horizon cannot be seen on Earth, so anything happening inside the event horizon can no longer interact with the rest of the universe. Imagine a future spacecraft foolish enough to land on the surface of a massive star just as it begins to collapse in the way that we have been describing. Perhaps the captain is asleep at the gravity meter, and before the crew can say Albert Einstein, they have collapsed with the star inside the event horizon. Frantically, they send an escape pod straight outwards, but paths outward twist around and become paths inward, and the pod turns around and falls toward the center of the black hole. They send a radio message to their loved ones, bidding goodbye, but radio messages like light must travel through space-time, and the curved space-time allows nothing to get out. Their final message remains unheard. Events inside the event horizon can never again affect events outside of it. What is this event horizon? (laughs) We'll talk about it. The characteristics of an event horizon were first worked out by an astronomer and mathematician, Carl Schwarzschild. He was a member of the German army in World War I, and he died in 1916 of an illness he contracted while doing artillery shell calculations on the Russian front. His paper on the theory of event horizons was among the last things he finished as he was dying. It was the first exact solution to Einstein's equations of general relativity. The radius of the event horizon is called the Schwarzschild radius in his memory. The event horizon is the boundary of the black hole. Calculations show that it doesn't get smaller once the whole star has collapsed inside it. It's the region that separates the things trapped inside it from the rest of the universe, sort of like what happens inside the event horizon stays within the event horizon. Anything coming from the outside is also trapped once it comes inside the event horizon. The horizon's size turns out to be dependent only on the mass inside. If the Sun, with its mass of one solar mass, were to become a black hole, which, as you know, it won't, the Schwarzschild radius would be about 3 kilometers. Thus, the entire black hole would be about one-third the size of a neutron star of the same mass, or one-third the size of a medium city. Feed the black hole some mass, and the horizon will grow, but not very much. If somehow the black hole could double its mass, then the black hole would be about six kilometers in radius, still really tiny on the cosmic scale. The event horizons of more massive black holes can have larger radii. For example, if a globular cluster of hundred thousand stars could collapse into a black hole, it would be about 300 kilometers in radius, a little less than half the radius of the Sun. If the entire galaxy As our galaxy could collapse in a black hole, it would be only about 10 to the 12 kilometers in radius. That's a trillion kilometers, or about a tenth of a light year. Smaller masses have correspondingly smaller horizons. For Earth to become a black hole, (laughs) it would have to be compressed to a radius of only one centimeter, (laughs) less than the size of a grape. I might say (laughs) much less than the size of a grape. A typical asteroid, if crushed to a small enough size to be a black hole, would have the dimensions of an atomic nucleus. Now let's address a common misconception. Most of the modern folklore about black holes is misleading. One idea you may have heard is that black holes go around sucking up things with their gravity. Actually, it's only very close to a black hole that something can feel the strange effects that we've been discussing. The gravitational attraction far away from the black hole is the same as that of the star that collapsed to form it. So, for example, if our sun suddenly collapsed into a black hole without any explosion or releasing any mass, the only things that we would notice is it would suddenly get really dark and we'd be able to see the stars, but we wouldn't see the moon or the sun. But because the gravitational pull on our planet from what used to be the Sun would not change, our orbital motion would probably be the same. Remember that the gravity of any star some distance away acts as if all of its mass were concentrated at a point in the center, which is what we call the center of gravity? Well, for real stars, we merely imagine that all the mass is concentrated there. For black holes, all that mass really is concentrated at a point in the center. To experience the really strong gravitational pull of a black hole, you'd have to be near the event horizon, and it would be hard not to be pulled into the event horizon by that tug, that warped space time. But just remember, once you're in the event horizon, you're not getting out. But remember, the event horizon of a black hole is really small, can be smaller than the size of a city, and you'd have to be really close to one to feel its devastating effects. So, as it turns out, the remnant of a black hole is usually a lot less dangerous than the star that produced it. There is a Making Connections box titled Gravity and Time Machines. And it reads, Time machines are one of the favorite devices of science fiction. Such a device would allow you to move through time at a different pace or in a different direction from everyone else. General relativity suggests that that's possible, in theory, to construct a time machine using gravity that could take you into the future. Let's imagine a place where gravity is terribly strong, such as near a black hole. General relativity predicts that the stronger the gravity, the slower the pace of time, as seen by a distant observer. So imagine a future astronaut with a fast and strongly built spaceship who volunteers to go on a mission to such a high-gravity environment. The astronomer leaves in the year 2,222, just after graduating from college at an age of 22. This person takes, say, 10 years to get to the black hole. Once there, they orbit some distance from it, taking care not to get pulled in. They're now in a high-gravity realm where time passes much more slowly than it does on Earth. This isn't just an effect of the mechanism of the clocks. Time itself is running slowly. That means in every way they have of measuring time, they'll have the same slowed down reading when compared to time passing on Earth. Their heart will beat more slowly, their hair will grow more slowly, their antique wristwatch will tick more slowly, and so on. They won't be aware of the slowing down, though, because all their readings of time, whether made by their own bodily functions or with mechanical equipment, are measuring the same slower time. Meanwhile, back on Earth, time passes as it always does for us. Our astronaut now emerges from the region of the black hole. Their mission of exploration finished, and they return to Earth. Before leaving, they carefully note that according to their timepieces, they spent about two weeks in the black hole, or around the black hole, I should say. They then take exactly 10 years to return to Earth. So their calculations tell them that since they were 22 when they left, They would be 42 plus two weeks when they return. So the year on Earth, they figure, would be 2,242. And their classmates should now be approaching their midlife crises. (laughs) Like me. But our astronauts should have paid more attention in their astronomy class. Because time slowed down near the black hole, much less time passed for them than for people on Earth. While their clocks measured two weeks spent near the black hole, more than 2,000 weeks, depending on how close they got, could have well passed on Earth. That's equal to 40 years, meaning their classmates will be senior citizens in their 80s when they, a mere 42-year-old, returns. On Earth, it'll be not 2,242, but 2,282. And they'll say they have arrived in the future. Is this scenario real? Well, it has a few practical challenges. We don't think any black holes are close enough for us to reach in 10 years. And we don't think any spaceship or human can survive near a black hole. But the key point about slowing down of time is a natural consequence of Einstein's general theory of relativity, and we saw that its predictions have been confirmed by experiment after experiment. Let me just clarify the statement that the slowing down of time is a natural consequence of Einstein's general theory of relativity. As it's written, it sounds like because Einstein said so, this is what happens, where in reality, nature is what happens. Einstein's general theory of relativity describes nature, and predictions based on that theory tell us something else. So in that consequence, it's really talking about what happens in nature, how we interpret it, and what we think our interpretations tell us. And now for a spoiler alert, (laughs) the box reads, such developments in the understanding of science also become inspiration for science fiction writers. Recently, the film Interstellar, close your ears if you haven't seen it, featured the protagonist traveling close to a massive black hole. The resulting delay in his aging relative to his earthbound family is a key part of the plot. Science fiction novels such as Gateway by Frederick Pohl and A Wonderful Out of Time by Larry Niven also make use of the slowing down of time near black holes as major turning points in the story. For a list of science fiction stories based on good astronomy, you can go to the link provided in this box. And now the question you've all been dying to ask, what happens if you go into a black hole? The fact that scientists cannot see inside black holes has not kept them from trying to calculate what they are like. One of the first things these calculations showed was that the formation of a black hole obliterates nearly all information about the star that collapsed to form it. Physicists like to say black holes have no hair, meaning that nothing sticks out of the black hole to give us clues about what kind of star produced it or what material has fallen inside. The only information a black hole can reveal about itself is its mass, its spin, and whether it has any electrical charge. What happens to the collapsing star core that made the black hole? Our best calculations predict that the material will continue to collapse under its own weight, forming an infinitely squeeze-on point a place of zero volume and in infinite density, to which we give the name singularity. That's an important term in mathematics and in physics. At the singularity, spacetime ceases to exist, and our understanding of nature breaks down. We do not yet have the physical understanding or the mathematical tools to describe the singularity itself, or even if singularities actually occur. From the outside, however, the entire structure of a basic black hole, one that's not rotating, can be described as a singularity surrounded by an event horizon. Compared to humans, black holes are really very simple objects. (laughs) We can't say much about them. Scientists have also calculated what would happen if an astronaut were to fall into a black hole. Let's take up an observing position a long, safe distance away from the event horizon and watch this astronaut fall towards it. This is such a terrible thought experiment. But, okay, at first they fall away from us, moving ever faster, just as though they were approaching any massive star. However, as they near the event horizon of the black hole, things change. The strong gravitational field around the black hole will make their clocks run more slowly when seen from our outside perspective. If, as they approach the event horizon, they send out a signal once per second according to their clock, we will see the spacing between their signals grow longer and longer until they become infinitely long when they reach the event horizon. Recalling our discussion of gravitational redshift, we could say that the infalling astronaut uses a blue light to send their signals every second, but we see the light get redder and redder until its wavelength is nearly infinite. As the spacing between clock ticks approaches infinity from our perspective, it will appear to us that the astronaut is slowly coming to a stop, frozen in time at the event horizon. In the same way, all matter falling into a black hole will also appear to an outside observer to stop at the event horizon, frozen in place and taking an infinite time to fall through it. But don't think that matter falling into the black hole will therefore be easily visible at the event horizon. The tremendous redshift will make it very difficult to observe any radiation from the frozen victims of the black hole. This however is only how we, located far away from the black hole, see things. To the astronaut, their time goes goes at its normal rate and they fall right on through the event horizon into the black hole. Remember, this horizon is not a physical barrier, but just a region of space where the curvature of spacetime makes escape impossible. You may have trouble with the idea that you, watching far away, and the astronaut falling in have such very different ideas about what has happened. This is the reason Einstein's ideas about space and time are called theories of relativity. What each observer measures about the world depends on, and is relative to, his or her frame of reference. This observer in the strong gravity measures time and space differently from the one sitting in weaker gravity. When Einstein proposed these ideas, many scientists also had difficulty with the idea that such two different views of the same event could be correct, each in his own world, and they tried to find a mistake in the calculations. There were no mistakes. We and the astronaut really would see the astronaut fall into a black hole very differently. For the astronaut, there is no turning back. Once inside the event horizon, the astronaut, along with any signals from their radio transmitter, will remain hidden forever in the universe outside. They will, however, have a long time from their perspective to feel sorry for themselves as they approach the black hole. Suppose they're falling feet first. The force of gravity that the singularity exerts on the feet is greater than on the head, so they'll be stretched slightly. Because the singularity is a point, the left side of their body will be pulled slightly towards the right, and the right side pulled slightly towards the left, bringing each side closer into the singularity. The astronaut will therefore be squeezed in one direction and stretched in another. Some some scientists like to call this process of stretching and narrowing spaghettification the point at which the astronaut becomes so stretched that they perish depends on the size of the black hole. For black holes with masses billions of times the mass of the sun, such as those found at the centers of galaxies like our own, this spaghettification becomes significant only after the astronaut passes through the event horizon. For black holes with masses a few solar mass, the astronomer will be stretched and ripped apart even before they reach the event horizon. Earth exists similar tidal forces on an astronaut performing a spacewalk. In the case of Earth, the tidal forces are so small that they pose no threat to the health and safety of the astronaut. Not so in the case of black holes. Sooner or later, as the astronaut approaches the black hole, the tidal forces will become so great that the astronaut will be ripped apart, eventually reduced to a collection of individual atoms that will continue their inexorable fall into the singularity. This section ends with a link to learning box, and as always, I suggest that you visit the links in this box. From the previous discussion, you will probably agree that jumping into a black hole is definitely a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. (laughs) You can see an engaging explanation of the death of a black hole by Neil deGrasse Tyson, where he explains the effect of tidal forces on the human body until it dies by spaghettification. An overview of black holes is given in this Discovery Channel video excerpt. So there are two links, one to Neil deGrasse Tyson and the other to the Discovery Channel. Enjoy. This is section 24.6, evidence for black holes. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. 1. Describe what to look for when seeking and confirming the presence of a stellar black hole. 2. Explain how a black hole is inherently black, yet can be associated with luminous matter. and 3. Differentiate between stellar black holes and the black holes in the centers of galaxies. Theory tells us what black holes are like, but do they actually exist, and how do we go about looking for something that is many light years away, only about a few dozen kilometers across, and completely black? It turns out that the trick is not to look for the black hole itself, but instead to look for what it does to a nearby companion star. As we saw, when very massive stars collapse, they leave behind their gravitational influence. The question becomes, what if a member of a binary star system becomes a black hole and its companion manages to survive the death of the massive star. While the black hole disappears from our view, we may be able to deduce its presence from the things it does to its companion. Let's look at some requirements for a black hole. So here is a prescription for finding a black hole. Start by looking for a star whose motion, determined by the Doppler shift of its spectral lines, shows it to be a member of a binary star system. If both stars are visible, neither can be a black hole, so focus your attention on just those systems where only one star of the pair is visible, even with our most sensitive telescopes. However. Being invisible is not enough, because a relatively faint star might be hard to see next to the glare of a brilliant companion, or if it's shrouded by dust. And even if the star is really invisible, it could be a neutron star. Therefore, we must also have evidence that the unseen star has a mass too high to be a neutron star, and that it is a collapsed object, an extremely small stellar remnant. We can use Kepler's law and our knowledge of the visible star to measure the mass of the invisible member of the pair. If the mass is greater than about three solar masses, then we're likely seeing, or more precisely, not seeing, a black hole, as long as we can make sure the object really is a collapsed star. If matter falls toward a compact object of high gravity, the material is accelerated to a high speed. Near the event horizon of a black hole, matter is moving at velocities that approach the speed of light. As the atoms whirl chaotically toward the event horizon, they rub against each other. Internal friction can heat them to temperatures of 100 million Kelvin or more. Such hot matter emits radiation in the form of flickering X-rays. The last part of our prescription, then, is to look for a source of X-rays associated with the binary system. Since X-rays do not penetrate Earth's atmosphere, which is a good thing, such sources must be found using X-ray telescopes in space. In our example, the infalling gas that produces the X-ray emissions comes from the black hole's companion star. Stars in close binary systems, if you remember, can exchange mass, especially if one of them expands into a red giant. Suppose that one star in a binary star system has evolved to a black hole and the second star begins to expand. If the two stars are not too far apart, the outer layers of the expanding star may reach the point where the black hole exerts more gravitational force on them than do the inner layers of the red giant to which the atmosphere belongs. The outer atmosphere then passes through the point of no return between the stars and falls toward the black hole. The mutual revolution of the giant star and the black hole as they dance through space causes the material falling toward the black hole to spiral around it rather than flow directly into it. The infalling gas whirls around the black hole in a pancake of matter called an accretion disk. It's within the inner part of this disk that matter is revolving about the black hole so fast that internal friction heats it up to x-ray emitting temperatures. Another way to form an accretion disk in a binary star system is to have a powerful stellar wind come from the black hole's companion. Such winds are a characteristic of several stages in a star's life. Some of the ejected gas in the wind will then flow close enough to the black hole to be captured by it into the disk. It's important to point out that the measurements we've been discussing are not quite as simple as they are described in a textbook. (laughs) In real life, Kepler's law allows us to calculate only the combined mass of the two stars in the binary system. We must learn more about the visible star of the pair and its history to ascertain the distance to the binary pair, the true size of the visible star's orbit, and how the orbit of the two stars is tilted toward Earth, something we can rarely measure. And neutron stars can also have accretion disks that produce X-rays, so astronomers must study the properties of these X-rays carefully when trying to determine what kind of object is at the center of the disk. Nevertheless, a number of systems that clearly contain black holes have now been found. The discovery of stellar-mass black holes. Because X-rays are such important tracers of black holes that are having some of their stellar companions for lunch, the search for black holes had to await the launch of sophisticated X-ray telescopes into space. These instruments must have the resolution to locate the X-ray sources accurately, remember, black holes are usually far away, and thereby enable us to match them to positions of binary star systems. The first black hole binary system to be discovered is called Cygnus X-1. The visible star in this binary system is a spectral type O, a large star. Measurements of the Doppler shifts of the O star's spectral lines show that it has an unseen companion. The X-rays flickering from it strongly indicate that the companion is a small collapsed object. The mass of the invisible collapsed companion is about 15 times that of the Sun. The companion is therefore too massive to be either a white dwarf or a neutron star. A number of other binary systems also meet all the conditions for containing a black hole. Table 24.1, which I encourage you to take a look at, lists the characteristics of some of the best examples. Now for my favorite subsection in this section, because I like to eat, (laughs) feeding a black hole. After an isolated star, or even one in a binary star system, becomes a black hole, it probably won't be able to grow much larger. Out in the suburban regions of the Milky Way galaxy where we live, stars and star systems are much too far apart for other stars to provide food to a hungry black hole. After all, material must approach very close to the event horizon before the gravity is any different from that of the star before it became a black hole. But, as we will see, the central regions of galaxies are quite different from their outer parts. Here, stars and raw material can be quite crowded together, and they can interact much more frequently with each other. Therefore, black holes in the centers of galaxies may have a much better opportunity to find mass close enough to their event horizons to cool Black holes are not particular about what they eat. They are happy to consume other stars, asteroids, gas, dust, and even other black holes. If two black holes merge, you just get a black hole with more mass and a larger event horizon. As a result, black holes in crowded regions can grow, eventually swallowing thousands or even millions of times the mass of the sun. Ground-based observations have provided compelling evidence that there is a black hole in the center of our own galaxy with a mass of about 4 million times the mass of the Sun. We'll discuss this more later. Observations with the Hubble Space Telescope have shown dramatic evidence for the existence of black holes in the centers of many other galaxies. These black holes can contain more than a billion solar masses. That's billion. The feeding frenzy of such supermassive black holes may be responsible for some of the most energetic phenomena in the universe, and evidence from more recent X-ray observations is also starting to indicate the existence of middleweight black holes whose masses are dozens to thousands of times the mass of the Sun. The crowded inner regions of the globular clusters we described earlier may be just the right breeding grounds for such intermediate-mass black holes. Over the past decades, many observations, especially with the Hubble Space Telescope and with many X-ray satellites, have been made that can be explained only if black holes really do exist. Furthermore, the observational tests of Einstein's general theory of relativity have convinced even the most skeptical scientists that his picture of warped or curved spacetime is indeed our best description of the effects of gravity near these black holes. This is section 24.7, Gravitational Wave Astronomy, and by the end of this section you should be able to do two things. One, describe what a gravitational wave is, what can produce it, and how fast it propagates. Two, understand the basic mechanisms used to detect gravitational waves. Another part of Einstein's ideas about gravity can be tested as a way of checking the theory that underlies black holes. According to general relativity, the geometry of spacetime depends on where matter is located. Any rearrangement of matter, say from a sphere to a sausage shape, creates a disturbance in spacetime. This disturbance is called a gravitational wave, and relativity predicts that it should spread outward at the speed of light. The big problem with trying to study such waves is that they are tremendously weaker than electromagnetic waves and correspondingly difficult to detect. Let's look at proof from a pulsar of gravitational waves. We've had indirect evidence for some time that gravitational waves exist. In 1974, astronomers Joseph Taylor and Russell Hulse discovered a pulsar orbiting another neutron star. This pulsar, by the way, is called PSR 1913 plus (laughs) 16. Pulled by the powerful gravity of its companion, the pulsar is moving at about a tenth the speed of light in its orbit. That's fast. According to general relativity, this system of stellar corpses should be radiating energy in the form of gravitational waves at a really high rate, high enough that the loss of energy will cause the pulsar and its companion to get closer together. If this is correct, then the orbital period should also decrease, according to Kepler's third law, by about one ten millionth of a second per orbit. Continuing observations showed that the period is actually decreasing, and by precisely this amount. Such a loss of energy in the system can be due only to the radiation of gravitational waves, thus confirming their existence. Because their discovery was so significant, Taylor and Hulse shared the 1993 Nobel Prize in Physics for this work. Now let's think about direct observations of gravitational waves. Although such an indirect proof convinced physicists that gravitational waves exist, it's even more satisfying to detect the waves directly. What we need are phenomena that are powerful enough to produce gravitational waves with amplitudes large enough that we can actually measure them. Theoretical calculations suggest that some of the most likely events that would give a burst of gravitational waves strong enough that our equipment on Earth could measure them would be, hold tight, there are five. One, the coalescence of two neutron stars in a binary system that spiral together until they slam into each other. Two, the swallowing of a neutron star by a hungry black hole. Three, the coalescence of two black holes into a larger black hole. Four, the implosion of a really massive star to form a neutron star or a black hole, and five, the first shudder when space and time came into existence and the universe began. For the last four decades, most of my life, scientists have been developing an audacious experiment to try and detect gravitational waves from the sources on this list. The US experiment, which was built with collaborators from the UK, Germany, Australia, and other countries is named LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. LIGO currently has two observing stations, one in Louisiana and the other in the state of Washington. The effects of gravitational waves are so small that confirmation of their detection will require simultaneous measurements by two widely separated facilities. Local events that might cause small motions with the observing stations and mimic gravitational waves such as small earthquakes, ocean tides, and even traffic could affect only one of the sites, so it should affect the two sites differently. So what does a LIGO station look like, and how does it work? Well, let's consider one of the stations, say in Washington. The other station is exactly the same. (laughs) Each of the stations, let's say the Washington one, has two pipes, and the pipes are basically vacuum, so there's nothing inside. There's a little bit inside, but we'll just say it's close to nothing. The pipes are each four kilometers long, and that's pretty long, and they have a 1.2 meter diameter, and that might be a diameter of the length of a person's height. A test mass with a mirror on it is suspended by wire at each of the four ends of the pipes. In other words, at each end of each pipe. <laughs> Ultra-stable laser light is reflected from the mirrors and travels back and forth along the pipes. If gravitational waves pass through the LIGO instrument, then according to Einstein's theory, the waves will affect local space-time. They will alternately stretch and shrink the distance the laser light must travel between the mirrors ever so slightly. When one arm of the instrument gets a little bit longer, the other will get a little bit shorter, and vice versa. This is because each of the two pipes are arranged perpendicular to each other, so one's stretch is another one's shrink. The challenge of this experiment lies in the phrase ever so slightly. In fact, to detect a gravitational wave, the change in the distance to the mirror must be measured with an accuracy of one ten thousandth the diameter of a proton. Those are immensely small. In 1972, Reiner Weiss of MIT wrote a paper suggesting how this seemingly impossible task might be accomplished. A great deal of new technology had to be developed, and work on the laboratory with funding from the National Science Foundation began in 1979. A full-scale prototype to demonstrate the technology was built and operated from 2002 to 2010 but the prototype was not expected to have the sensitivity required to actually detect gravitational waves from an astronomical source. Advanced LIGO, built to be more precise with the improved technology developed in the prototype, went into operation in 2015 and almost immediately detected gravitational waves. What LIGO found was gravitational waves produced in the final fraction of a second of the merger of two black holes. This made big news at the time. The black holes had masses of 20 and 36 times the mass of the sun, and the merger took place 1.3 billion years ago. The gravitational waves occurred so far away that it has taken that long of time for them to reach us, traveling at the speed of light. In the cataclysm of the merger, about three times the mass of the Sun was converted into energy. That's a lot. At once. (laughs) During the tiny fraction of a second for the merger to take place, this event produced power, about ten times the power produced by all the stars in the entire visible universe. But the power was all in the form of gravitational waves, and hence was invisible to our instruments, except LIGO. The event was recorded in Louisiana about 7 milliseconds before the detection in Washington, just the right distance given the speed at which gravitational waves travel, the speed of light, and indicates the source was located somewhere in the southern hemisphere sky. Unfortunately, the merger of two black holes is not expected to produce any light, so this is the only observation we have of the event. This detection by LIGO and another one of a different black hole merger a few months later opened a whole new window on the universe. One of the experimenters compared the beginning of gravitational wave astronomy to the era when silent films were replaced by movies with sound, comparing the vibration of space-time through the passing of a gravitational wave to the vibrations that sound makes. By the end of 2018, just two years ago, LIGO had detected eight more mergers of black holes. Six of these, like the initial discovery, involved mergers of black holes with a range of masses that have been observed only by gravitational waves. In one merger, black holes with masses of 31 and 25 times the mass of the Sun merged to form a spinning black hole with a mass of about 53 times the mass of the Sun. Some of these events were detected not only by the two LIGO detectors, but also by a newly operational European gravitational wave observatory called Virgo. Another event was caused by the merger of a 40 and a 29 solar mass black hole, resulting in a 66 mass black hole. That's 66 solar masses, of course. Astronomers are not yet sure how black holes in this mass range actually form to begin with. Two other mergers detected by LIGO involved black holes with stellar masses comparable to those of black holes in X-ray binary systems. In one case, the merging black holes had masses of 14 and 8 times the mass of the Sun. In the other event, again detected by both LIGO and Virgo, was produced by a merger of a black hole with mass 7 solar masses and a black hole with a mass 12 solar masses. None of the mergers of black holes was detected in any other way besides gravitational waves. It's quite likely that the merger of black holes does not produce any electromagnetic radiation. In late 2017, data from all three gravitational wave observatories was used to locate the position in the sky of a fifth event which was produced by the merger of objects with masses of 1.1 to 1.6 times the mass of the Sun. This is the mass range for neutron stars, so in this case what was observed was the spiraling together of two neutron stars. Data obtained from all three observatories enabled scientists to narrow down the area of sky where the event occurred. The Fermi satellite offered a fourth set of observational data, detecting a flash of gamma rays at the same time, which confirms the long-standing hypothesis that mergers of neutron stars create short gamma-ray bursts. The Swift satellite also detected a flash of ultraviolet light at the same time and in the same part of the sky. This was the first time that a gravitational wave event had been detected with any kind of electromagnetic wave. The combined observations from LIGO, Virgo, and then the two satellites, Fermi and Swift, showed that this source was located in NGC 4993, a galaxy at a distance of about 130 million light-years in the direction of the constellation Hydra. With a well-defined position, ground-based observatories could point their telescopes directly at the source and obtain its spectrum. These observations showed that the merger ejected material with a mass of about 6% the mass of the sun and a speed of one-tenth the speed of light. This material is rich in heavy elements, just as the theory of kilonovas predicted. First estimates suggest that the merger produced about 200 Earth masses full of gold and around 500 Earth masses of platinum. This makes clear that neutron star mergers are a significant source of heavy elements and ones we value highly on Earth. As additional detections of such events improve theoretical estimates of the frequency at which neutron star mergers occur, it may well turn out that the vast majority of heavy elements have been created in such cataclysms. Observing the merger of black holes via gravitational waves also means that we can now test Einstein's general theory of relativity where its effects are very strong, that is, close to black holes and not weak as they are near Earth. One remarkable result from these detections is that the signals measured so closely match the theoretical predictions made using Einstein's theory. Once again, Einstein's revolutionary idea is found to be the correct description of nature. Because of the scientific significance of the observations of gravitational waves, three of the LIGO project leaders, Rainer Weiss of MIT and Kip Thorne and Barry Bash of Caltech, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2017. Several facilities similar to LIGO and Virgo are under construction in other countries to contribute to gravitational wave astronomy and help us pinpoint more precisely the location of signals we detect in the sky. The European Space Agency, ESA, is exploring the possibility of building an even larger detector for gravitational waves in space. The goal is to launch a facility called ELISA sometime in the mid-2030s. The design calls for three detector arms, each a million kilometers in length oh my goodness, for the laser light to travel in space. This facility could detect a merger of distant supermassive black holes, which might have occurred when the first generation of stars formed only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. In December 2015, the ESA launched the LISA Pathfinder and successfully tested the technology required to hold two gold platinum cubes in a state of weightlessness, perfect rest, relative to each other. While the LISA pathfinder cannot detect gravitational waves, such stability is required if ELISA is to be able to detect the small changes in path length produced by passing gravitational waves. The authors write, We should end by acknowledging that the ideas discussed in this chapter may seem strange and overwhelming, especially the first time you read them. The consequences of the general theory of relativity take some time to get used to. But they make the universe more bizarre and interesting than you probably thought before you took this course. And I thought I would end this chapter with a few more quotes from Einstein. As a human being, one has been endowed with just enough intelligence to be able to see clearly how utterly inadequate that intelligence is when confronted with what exists. The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it, and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead, and his eyes are dimmed. One thing I have learned in a long life, that all our science, measured against reality, is primitive and childlike, and yet it is the most precious thing we have. And the last quote seems like the perfect quote for this point in history. Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. This is the summary of chapter 24, 24 24.1, introducing general relativity. Einstein proposed the equivalence principle as the foundation of the theory of general relativity. According to this principle, there is no way that anyone or any experiment in a sealed environment can distinguish between free fall and the absence of gravity. 24.2 Space Time and Gravity. By considering the consequences of the equivalence principle, Einstein concluded that we live in a curved space time. The distribution of matter determines the curvature of space-time. Other objects, and even light, entering a region of space-time must follow its curvature. Light must change its path near a massive object, not because light is bent by gravity, but because space-time is bent by gravity. 24.3. Tests of General Relativity In weak gravitational fields, the predictions of general relativity agree with the predictions of Newton's law of gravity. However, in the stronger gravity of the Sun, general relativity makes predictions that differ from Newtonian physics and can be tested. For example, general relativity predicts that light or radio waves will be deflected when they pass near the sun, and that the position where Mercury is at perihelion would change by 43 arcseconds per century, even if there were no other planets in the solar system to perturb its orbit. These predictions have been verified by observation. 24.4. Time in general relativity. (laughs) Einstein said, by the way, time is an illusion. General relativity predicts that the stronger the gravity, the more slowly time must run. Experiments on Earth and with spacecraft have confirmed this prediction with remarkable accuracy. When light or other radiation emerges from a compact small remnant, such as a white dwarf or a neutron star, it shows a gravitational redshift due to the slowing of time. 24.5, black holes. Theory suggests that stars with stellar cores more massive than three times the mass of the sun at the time they exhaust their nuclear fuel will collapse to become black holes. The surface surrounding a black hole, where the escape velocity equals the speed of light, is called the event horizon, and the radius of the surface is called the Schwarzschild radius. Nothing, not even light, can escape through the event horizon from a black hole. At its center, each black hole is thought to have a singularity, a point of infinite density and zero volume. Matter falling into a black hole appears, as viewed by an outside observer, to freeze in position at the event horizon. However, if we were riding on the infalling matter, we would pass through the event horizon. As we approach the singularity, the tidal forces would tear our bodies apart (laughs) even before we reach the singularity. 24.6 Evidence for black holes. The best evidence of stellar mass black holes comes from binary star systems in which, number one, one star of the pair is not visible, number two, The flickering X-ray emission is characteristic of an accretion disk around a compact object. And number three, the orbital characteristics of the visible star indicate that the mass of its invisible companion is greater than three times the mass of the Sun. A number of systems with these characteristics have been found. Black holes with masses of millions to billions of solar masses are found at the centers of large galaxies. 24.7 Gravitational Wave Astronomy General relativity predicts that the arrangement of matter in space should produce gravitational waves. The existence of such waves was first confirmed in observations of a pulsar in orbit around another neutron star whose orbits were spiraling closer and losing energy in the form of gravitational waves. In 2015, LIGO found gravitational waves directly by detecting the signal produced by the merger of two stellar mass black holes, opening a new window on the universe. That's the end of the reading of chapter 24, and I'm so glad you stuck around for the end so I could say, I'll see you next time, or I'll speak with you soon.